Hello, hello, hello. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, everybody. Merry Merry Christmas. Christmas. It's the Pems Podcast. Psychic Eye Mystery Podcast, episode number five. We're just blazing through these. It's disturbing Um, me that we have the same stupid ass dance move (laughs) on camera. (laughs) This was not rehearsed, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) We have rhythm. We have rhythm for white girls and we have rhythm. <laughs> look out, look out men. <laughs> Just like, um, oh God, what was her name? The chick from Seinfeld. Elaine. Just like Elaine. Yeah. From Seinfeld. That's pretty much how I dance. Um, and the men are just beating down my door to dance with me. All right. So in the spirit of the holiday, yeah, here are some spirits. Cheers. There are some spirits. Woo-hoo. Cheers and Mary, Mary. Cheers. Love you, honey. Love you too. Ooh, okay, so so this what are you drinking? Trying this. I haven't tried this yet. That bodes well. What are you drinking? <laughs> Not something we want to advertise. That, is, that, is, that is potent. <laughs> no one light a match near me. <laughs> oh my God. Woo! Wow. And then there's um, so what what is your Christmas Christmas cocktail? Okay, so it comes from the um cocktails modern favorites to make at home william sonoma book that i am in love with um i've never made this one before and um probably would only make it again with great smelling man <laughs> speaking of smelly man what's going on man. oh my god no he's gsm he's jism girls get you some jism <laughs> my sister is like no no victoria just no just no oh god that was funny in my head um yeah speaking of great smelling men because he's um he hasn't been around lately i got me some geo oh look at this look at this for my listening audience i'm holding a pillow a little spritz a little more spritz oh yeah i want to snore somebody help me oh my god Uh, Okay. Well, that's lovely that you're now, uh, again, advertising a brand that is not paying us. <laughs> someday, Geo, someday, someday, Geo, pay us to stop talking you about know, you. It, it could be that if you just use gain, you might have the same experience, which is a little less expensive. <laughs> Threes. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, no, and as long I'm as you're not you, like- It smells so as long, as long as you're not grabbing your pillow and dancing around the room, pretending it's- That's 10, after the camera stop. All right, fine. That's after, that's, that's when we stop recording. I'm very worried for you. All right. <laughs> so again, what is your cocktail? Okay, I am drinking a pomegranate martini. Um, and I cannot find my glasses, so I'm going to wing it. Um, okay, so a pomegranate martini has one ounce of pomegranate juice- um, sugar for the rim glass and pomegranate juice for the rim glass. So you do a little sugar rim, um, two ounces of vodka, <laughs> one half ounce of Cointreau. No wonder it's potent. Um, half ounce of fresh orange juice, one orange twist, one teaspoon of pomegranate seeds, which I forgot. I forgot to put the pomegranate seeds. In. Well, let's get those done. Boop, which is what makes it like so holiday as pomegranates come out, you know, late fall, yes. right around Christmas. What are you drinking? What are you drinking, baby? Uh, I'm drinking a uh, holiday sangria, which is rose wine, club soda, a lavender. Some grapes in it? No, those are cranberries. 
Oh, wow. Once again, the recipe Honey. is rosé wine, cranberry juice, <laughs> club soda, and Those are grapes. I know they're grapes. They're okay, grapes. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Let's tell everyone about the recipe. Sure thing. Okay. We'll just splash a bunch rose of Rosé wine, in. something, something else. Mm-hmm. Boring, dull. <clears throat> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It looks actually delicious. We have to, the next time... I'm, I'm home. You got to make that. We'll, sure thing. we'll have, we'll have Leanne over and we'll. So the way that Victoria potty. and I cook are very different. She follows recipes. I do not. Yeah. So. And Sandy is like the MacGyver of recipes. Like I've, she's just like looks in the fridge oh, you know, and it's magic and it comes out. It's the most delicious thing it's so fucking good. And I'm like, oh, I can never wing that at home. So well, she also yeah. says, send me the recipe. I'm like, I, I don't have one. I know. It drives me crazy. She's like, oh my God, I just made this and it was so delicious. And I'm like, oh, send me the, the recipe. And she's like, yeah, no, I just threw it, threw it together. And I'm like, send me the ingredients and tell me what you did. How Do I ever get that? I never no. get it. I never get it. I promised it, but I never get it. So anyway, this is good. Have, have another step. Good. <laughs> now, and then let's promote your another one of your brilliant New York Times bestselling books. Deadly forecast is what I'm <clears throat> promoting this time. This is actually one of, I think this is my favorite, honestly, my favorite Abby. Um, Abby, um, the premise is the opening line is that Abby wakes up from having been unconscious. She's wearing a wedding dra- dress and she's strapped to a bomb. Um, and it has a dual timeline, which was a little tricky to pull off. So while you are learning about how Abby ended up where she's ended up, <clears throat> there's a race against the clock um, for MJ, Gilly, Dutch, where's Geo? Um, <laughs> now where's Geo? Before, no. Dutch is definitely a great smelling man, 100%. And the next Abby I write, He's going to be bathing in geo. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so um, it's a race against the clock to try and find her. They know that she's probably, uh, well, she's definitely been kidnapped because she doesn't show up at her own wedding. Um, and uh, the wedding was <clears throat> put together by her beloved sister, Kat, who is definitely based on my sister. Um, it's like, it's like, just, it's like um, you read about Loosely. Kat. It's, Loosely. <laughs> it's, it's just, that's who Sandy is. Um, no, no, she's not. She's actually, um, Sands is far more like Kat in the Kat Gilly books than she is like Kat in the Abby books. Um, but you're looking at Kat through the lens of Abby. And yeah. so. Very distorted. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> very I don't distorted. Know, very, a little tiny bit distorted. Anyway, no, I love, I, I loved writing this book. Um, it's super fast paced. Um, and, um, it was a tricky thing to pull off and, um, I'm kind of proud of, of myself because I think I did, I think I pulled it off. So uh, it's uh, a wonderful book. And, uh, I, I have very strong Christmas memories tied to this book because for those of you that don't have a sibling that is a New York times bestselling author, will you stop but- with the New York, New York times bestselling author? People think I, I'm like- sorry. That's how you sign your emails. I'm just <laughs> That's just a thing at the bottom. That's just a thing at the bottom. It's part of your signature. I, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, what? so my, my reason, the reason that this is a memory for me for Christmas is because this book came out in the summer of 2013. 
And like any other creative person, you know, you want to share your, your accomplishments, your production with family members. So Victoria sent me the book, but I was in the midst of an incredibly intense job, lots of travel. And I had just gotten a new puppy, which for those of you that know, a puppy is worse than a baby because they're constantly eating everything. And, and then uh, on top of that, you have to be up all hours of the night to try and potty train them. So I was like challenge accepted. Yeah. Never again. But anyway, (laughs) uh, so by the time I finally got to sit down and actually read the book, it was later in the year. And I had a trip on the 17th of freaking December. I had to travel to Bentonville, Arkansas, for a business meeting overnight. And I'm feeling super guilty because it's the week before Christmas. There's a tree standing in my living room, no decorations. My uh. children are angry with me. It's, <laughs> it's just utter and complete chaos. So I fly into Bentonville and flying to Bentonville, even though the world's largest retailer is located there, it is a small airport. It's one, one baggage claim carousel and one terminal. They don't allow large oh. planes to fly in. So you constantly have to connect through another major city. Oh, what a pain. So meeting yes. goes well get up the next morning, do the meeting. And then I'm bound for the airport. And I had a like four o'clock flight out. Um, My connecting flight was in Dallas. I get to Dallas and I'm assuming I'm going to have a quick 30 minute turnaround. Thank you. 30 minute turnaround. And it turns out that my flight is grounded in Dallas because there is a snowstorm that has hit Boston. So now I call home to tell my sons that I'm not going to be home in time. Uh, to help decorate the tree. I don't know why they picked, oh, when you get home from your business trip, let's do that. But in any event, they're planners. Uh, they're definitely they are planners. Just like their mother. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I have to apologize telling them I don't know when I'm going to be home, but I'm going to do my best, blah, blah, blah. So uh, one son was particularly upset with me about this. Like I'm supposed to control the weather. In any event, finally board oh, the plane hello. at 10. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. So at 10 o'clock, I get on the flight and now I'm able to finish the last, you know, breakneck speed chapters of Victoria's book. And it's a very emotional book for me. Um, There's a very climactic ending and I have a cold. I'm down to one tissue and I just, I finish the book and I start crying like an idiot. And I'm in between two people who thankfully are a sound asleep, but I, the tears are just using their sweater. It's just awful. And fortunately, uh, um, flight attendant passes by. She gives me that eye. Like, do I want to ask what's wrong? Maybe I'll just pretend I don't see her. Yeah. Right. (laughs) More peanuts. No. So I managed to get a cocktail napkin from her and was able to dry my eyes, but I, I have very strong connection to this book because of that. And when I got home at two in the morning, I walked in the door, the lights were dimly on. And I realized that my son had gone ahead and decorated the tree without me. (laughs) It's a miracle. It was a Christmas miracle. It was a Christmas miracle for sure. <laughs> but uh, anyway, love to the book. Oh, so thank you, baby. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, it's my favorite. It really is um, for a number of reasons, <clears throat> a number of reasons. So, okay. Woohoo. All right. Let's get to anecdotes, right? Are we on yes. anecdotes? We're on anecdotes. Okay. I had a, um, it was an intense week last week. I'll tell you, it was tough. Um, last week I got yelled at for like an hour. <laughs> That's always fun. <laughs> yeah. For Sign no one. me up for that. Sign yeah, me up for that. It was not fun at all, at all. <clears throat> yeah. And I knew better. Um, I should have ended the reading sooner. But or I had a cocktail handy either way. Yeah, something, oh, I had a cocktail handy afterward. Let me tell you. Um, it's, it's never fun. Um, 
reading for someone who's so deep in crisis that they're just absolutely unwilling to listen to you. And um, that was a really, really, really difficult reading. And then I read for another, another client and I'm still like, you know, some the bad ones always stick with you, right? The ones that <clears throat> where you can just feel their disappointment, you know, it just sticks with you. And I had a client um, whose father and brother came through and they were so excited to connect with her. Like it was just, you know, they barreled into me. They gave me a big hug to, hand, uh, to pass on to her. And she was absolutely non-pulsed. <clears throat> then her grandmother came in, same thing, absolutely non-pulsed. And the only person she wanted to hear from was her mother. And um, I was able to get the mother in, but the circumstances surrounding her mother's death were the reason that her mother was reluctant to step forward. And um, it just lingered with me feeling the father and son so excited. You know, they get one phone call home, one fucking phone call home. And they're met with, oh, it's you, you know, like, don't do that. You know, just don't do that. If you sign up for a reading with a medium, I don't care who steps forward, accept them with grace, accept them with um, the knowledge that they had to work hard to come through that door. It's not easy. They had to carry an enormous amount of energy and um, just, just open the fucking door. Just let them, just let them in, let them in, let them say what they have to say. Even if you don't like them, let them in and let them have what they want to say. So <clears throat> it was a tough week. But we're not talking about tough uh, anymore. We're going to talk about um, something a little bit more uplifting. So <clears throat> um, I didn't know when I was starting to do this mediumship stuff that I could actually kind of connect with um, pets on the other side. I knew like I'd seen them um, I, and I'd seen them taken care of by <clears throat> other family members. So it's common now for someone to step forward, show me a pet and be like, I'm the caregiver of this pet, which I, I love. It's marvelous, right? Because that's what we want. We want our pets well taken care of on the other side <clears throat> until we can get there. Um, and um, so uh, I had a client who wanted to hear from her dog and she asked me, can you connect with my dog directly. And I'm like, oh, I'll try. And boom, dog came in. It was awesome. Um, and um, the dog was telling me that um, uh, his fur mom carried a lot of guilt um, for the final, you know, the final grace that she extended to him by allowing him to cross over. <clears throat> and um, he made no bones about the fact that she needed to let that go. And she did actually feel a lot of um, guilt. She actually said to me, you know, I feel like I cut his time short and, um, her pup, um, actually her, actually it was a, she, sorry, Cheyenne was the pup's name, Cheyenne. It was a girl. Um, she let me know <clears throat> immediately that she probably only would lasted three more days. So, and she was so uncomfortable. She was so nauseous. She was so uncomfortable. So her fur mommy did her an absolute, um, blessing by allowing her to cross over. And she confirmed that actually um, her puppy was um, riddled with cancer and the vet initially on the diagnosis only gave her um, three weeks to live. And the pup lasted four months. And um, that puppy held on <clears throat> um, by its fingernails, you know, by its nails, um, just to kind of hang out with her longer. So, um, 
Then um, the pup showed me another pup that looked very similar, um, Boston Terriers, and um, let me know that um, this other pup, uh, this other male pup, and she were hanging out and running around in circles, and that this other pup was like a litter mate. So I asked my client, I said, did, did your dog, um, did Cheyenne have a litter mate? And she said, Victoria, it's so funny you say that because when I brought Cheyenne home, <clears throat> my neighbor was so taken with her that she went to the same um, pet store, picked up a dog very similar. We always suspected that they were litter mates, couldn't you know, definitively say, but always success, uh, suspected that they were litter mates and they would play together um, uh, often. You know, She and her neighbor would let them kind of have play dates together. And as it turned out, that dog, um, the male dog had passed away two weeks earlier. So um, Cheyenne was letting her know that they were reunited again, which I thought was so beautiful, you know, so beautiful. <clears throat> and both pups were feeling great and fantastic and running around in circles. So um, when you get to the other side, your dogs, you know, shed the old and um, the old body, the sick body, the um, arthritis ridden body, and they become like puppies again, which I think is fantastic. And then <clears throat> I had in a very similar fashion, um, the next, the next night I had a woman, um, who had a cat named Jet and she really, really wanted to connect with Jet. So I was able to, um, connect with Jet, um, right away. And, um, Jet, um, showed me another cat that Jet was hanging out with. And so I asked, uh, and, and I felt like, um, it was a female cat. So I asked my client, I said, did you have another cat, female cat that also crossed over because Jet is with that, that cat? And she said, well, I've had several. <clears throat> so then um, Jet literally kind of painted the other cat black and orange. And um, um, the pattern on the cat looked like a jack-o'-lantern. And there was something about Halloween. And so I asked her, I said, well, I said, there's something with this other cat there's something about Halloween and I'm not sure if it was another black cat or what the deal is, but there's another cat over there and it's got something to do with Halloween. And she said, Oh my God. She said, I got a female cat on, on Halloween and we named her Holly. Right. Adorable. Amazing. So adorable. Yeah. So <clears throat> yeah, from that standpoint, um, it helped. It helped buffer a tough week. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious about like pets. I, I presume that they stay kind of connected. Well, connected. Yes. But like, I, this sounds crazy, but do you think like a dog could have been a horse in a past life or I kind of think so. You know, like yeah. I don't have any definitive proof. Um, when they're shown to me, they are an animal form and I don't know if a soul is just a soul is just a soul right? Um, because that's never how it's presented to me. It's presented as here's the cat, here's the dog, here's the grandmother, here's the mother, here's the father, right? Um, so there's never anything that steps forward that's out of line with our recollection of the physical form of that soul. So I don't know, you know, I don't know, like, um, and I am super, I know, um, that's a great question, Sans, because I am super curious, you know, is a soul, a soul, a soul, and they just take that form to say hello again, right? Or um, uh, when you cross over, like, do you, do you have your pets kind of running around you? I know that they are always the first ones to greet, um, your beloved cats are always the first ones to greet 
um, greet you when you cross over. Um, and the more beloved cats you have, or the more beloved pets you have, <clears throat> the more likely that they're the ones first, you know, first waiting at the rainbow bridge when you, when you step across. So definitely um, become a cat lady. It's just definitely what <laughs> I'm a cat lady. <laughs> yeah. Meow. Um, all over the place. Yeah. Um, but um, it was very, very uplifting because, um, you know, as you know, you have uh, your beloved Pugsley. I have my beloved Lily um, and I've had, I've got two cats over there. I've got um, another, another pup over there, um, guinea pigs, hamsters, all of that thing, you know, that I still remember so fondly. So, um, you know, I am kind of looking forward to the day that I get to hold Lulers again, you know, love her and squeeze her and hug her and kiss her. Um, so <clears throat> seeing this, um, kind of is proof to me that, um, they're there and that they have shed whatever pain that they were in right before they crossed. It's just, um, God, it just really does my soul good. So yeah, sure. so those, I'm sure. those, so those cool is my you're... anecdotes. And if you want to sign up for a reading with me and don't want to dismiss anybody who steps through the door first, please go to victorialaurie.com and, uh, click on the make an appointment um, make it a psychic appointment with me and, um, put on my calendar and I'd love to see who steps forward for you. And it might um, be helpful if, uh, when they sign up, uh, in preparation for the reading with you, right. they make their list of questions and even make a list of the people that they're hoping to hear from. Yeah. I think that's going to be super helpful. Actually, you made that suggestion and I have to kind of change that on my form, um, because I think it's brilliant. <clears throat> um, you know, I just don't, it just, it just, <laughs> It hurts when I see, um, you know, because I'm standing in the middle and I'm seeing these souls so excited, so happy to connect um, and um, they get dismissed. Um, and it's, you know, I understand there's family history and dysfunction and all of that stuff, but they're making an effort, acknowledge it, allow them, you know, kind of my feeling. So anyway, all right, onward. Onward on that note, onward. I'm done yelling at clients <laughs> for this week. Yeah, for the <laughs> it's like you know me. <laughs> okay, actually, I'm break, I'm on break until I think next Tuesday. So, um, and then I'm on, I it's my birthday next week, so we got to do we got to do a little cake next I'm week. Busy. Sans, I'm busy for the pen podcast next week. We'll do cake. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, you uh, make it on your end. I'll make it on yeah, my end. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we'll stuff, we'll stuff our faces. <laughs> I'll make the I'll make the cake, and she's like, "Oh, I forgot." No, 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 no. I will. I have a raspberry um, chocolate pudding cake that's okay. out of this world. The audience is our witness. You're going to make a cake. We'll see. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, would you like to get into this week's unsolved mystery? I would. I would. Right. It's a Christmas mystery that has been unsolved for 75 years, but that is true. I solved it. <laughs> <laughs> so never mind. <laughs> exactly. Next. <laughs> what else you got? All right. So this case is uh, called the missing solder children. And uh, it starts on Christmas Eve in 1945 in Fayetteville, West Virginia, George and Jenny Sauter were asleep in their home along with nine of their 10 children. When a fire broke out in the home around 1 AM. George, Jenny, and four of their children managed to escape, but sadly, five of their younger children, 14-year-old Maurice, 12-year-old Martha, 9-year-old Louis, 8-year-old Jenny, and 5-year-old Betty, were re 
reportedly trapped in two attic bedrooms that they shared among the five siblings. Even though the fire station was located two and a half miles away from the house, firefighters didn't reach the solder home until seven hours after the fire broke out. Once they finally arrived, the firemen found nothing but ash where the home had once stood. And despite a thorough search of the wreckage, authorities were unable to find any remains of the five missing children. Soon after the fire, George and Jenny began to suspect that their children were not dead, but instead kidnapped, and the fire had been deliberately, deliberately set as a diversion. All the surviving family members, most especially George and Jenny, held on to this belief until their dying days. Was this a tragic Christmas Eve fire deliberately set, and did the five children actually perish or escape? Well, that's what Victoria claims to have solved. So we'll get into uh, the circumstances. Solved mysteries by solved Victoria Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> People tune in. It's, it's five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Delete. Solved it. Yeah. Solved it. Solved it. We need a button, you know, like the easy button. We need a solved it button. That's what we need. That's what okay. we need for swag. We need solved it. <laughs> I'm just spitballing ideas here. Could yeah, be the keep party. drinking. Just keep drinking. <laughs> keep reading. Anyway, uh, this, the backstory to this is that Giorgio Sodu was born in Tula, Sardinia, Italy in 1895. And at the very young age of 13, Gio and his older brother traveled from Italy to Ellis Island. And as soon as Gio had cleared customs, his older brother boarded a boat back home. And for the rest of his life, George Sauter, as he became known, would not discuss the reasons behind his emigration to the United States. George found work in Pennsylvania carrying water and other supplies to railroad workers, and a few years later, he secured permanent work as a driver in Smithers, West Virginia, which eventually led George to start his own trucking company. Contracts with construction sites and coal mines kept George very busy and well-paid. Smithers, Virginia also proved to be lucky in love for George because he met a storekeeper's daughter named Jenny Cipriani, who had also immigrated from Italy to, during her childhood and uh, caught George's eye, and soon thereafter, they got married. The newlyweds settled in nearby Fayetteville, West Virginia, which had a large population of Italian immigrants. It was a two-story timber frame house with uh, about two miles north of town that the Sauters made their home, which would ultimately fill with 10 children beginning in 1923. The last of the Sauter children, Sylvia, was born in 1943, and by then their oldest son, Joe, had left home to serve in the military during World War II. George's trucking business continued to prosper, and the Sauters settled into a respectable middle-class lifestyle. However, George was highly opinionated and sometimes his views were polarizing. He was particularly vocal about his opposition to Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, even after his execution, which led to strong arguments with other members of the immigrant community. On Christmas Eve, 1945, Marion, the Sauter's oldest daughter, had been working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville. And once home, she, she surprised three of her younger sisters, Martha, age 12, Jenny, aged eight, and Betty, age five, with new Christmas toys that she had purchased for each of them as gifts. Due to the holiday, Jenny allowed her excited younger children to stay up past their usual bedtime. At 10 p.m., Jenny asked her sons, 14-year-old Maurice and nine-year-old Louis, to put the cows in and feed the chickens before going to bed. She then took Sylvia, who was age two, upstairs to bed with her. George and the two oldest boys, John, age 23, and George, age 16, were already asleep. At 12.30 in the morning, the telephone rang and awoke Jenny, who went downstairs to answer it. With the sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the background, the female caller asked for a name Jenny didn't recognize. Jenny told the caller she had reached the wrong number, hung up, and returned to bed. As she did, she noticed that the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn, 
two things the children normally attended to when they stayed up later than their parents. Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch, so Jenny assumed her younger children, who had stayed up past their bedtime, had retired to the attic bedrooms where they slept. Jenny closed the curtains, turned out the lights, and returned to bed. At 1 a.m., Jenny was again awakened, this time by the sound of a loud bang made by an object hitting the metal roof and then a rolling noise. After listening and hearing nothing further, she fell back asleep. But at 1.30 in the morning, Jenny awoke for a third time, this time because she smelled smoke. And when she got up, she found that the room George used for his office was on fire around the telephone line and fuse box. Jenny rushed to wake up George, and he in turn woke up their two older sons. The couple and four of their children, Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr., escaped the house. They frantically yelled to the children upstairs, but heard no response. The stairway was engulfed in flames, making it impossible to get to the attic. Efforts to get help and rescue the children were unexpectedly complicated. The home phone did not work, so Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the fire department, but couldn't reach the operator. A passing driver had also seen the flames and pulled into a nearby tavern to use the telephone, but that phone was out of order. Eventually, the motorist was successful in reaching the fire department from a phone in the center of town. Meanwhile, George, barefoot, climbed an outer wall and reached high enough to break open a window, cutting his arm in the process. He and his sons intended to use a ladder to the attic to rescue his children, but the ladder was not in its usual resting spot against the house, and it could not be found anywhere. A water barrel that could have been used to extinguish the fire was frozen solid. George then figured he'd maneuver one of his two company trucks up to the house, climb atop it, and then enter an attic window, but inexplicably, neither of the trucks would start, despite having worked perfectly the previous day. Frustrated and distressed, Jenny and George and their four children could only stand by and watch their home burn and collapse over the next 45 minutes, presumably with their five younger children still trapped in the house. The fire department, low on manpower due to the war and relying on individual firefighters to call each other, finally responded at eight in the morning, seven hours after the fire broke out. Chief Morris said the slow response was further hampered by the, his inability to drive the fire truck, requiring that he wait until someone who could drive it was available. Once on the scene, the firefighters, one of whom was Jenny's brother, could only sift through the ashes that had accumulated in the solder's basement. By 10 a.m., Chief Morris informed the solders that they had not found any bones or fragments that might have been expected if their children had perished in the house. Nevertheless, Morris believed that the unaccounted five children had died in the fire, suggesting it had been hot enough to burn their bodies completely. George was told to leave the site undisturbed so that the state fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough investigation. However, after four grief-stricken days, George and Jenny could no longer bear the sight of such heartbreak, so George bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of converting it into a memorial garden for his lost children. The very next day, the local coroner convened an inquest, which held that the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring. Death certificates for the five children were issued on December 30th, and George and Jenny were too heartbroken to attend the funeral on January 2nd, 1946, although their surviving children did. Was it a case of arson? In support of their belief that the fire was intentionally set, the Sodders pointed to a series of unusual circumstances that occurred leading up to the night of the fire that may have been related to George's polarizing views. In, in October of 1945, a traveling life insurance salesman, after being rejected, warned George that his house would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed because of the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. Coincidentally, this man also served on the inquest jury that ruled the fire an accident due to faulty wiring. Another visitor seeking hauling work took the occasion to go around to the back of the solder home and warn George that two separate fuse boxes would cause a fire someday. 
George was puzzled by the observations since he had just had the house rewired to support the installation of an electric stove and a follow-up inspection by the local electric company had deemed everything safe. After the fire, George vigorously disputed the fire department's finding that the blaze was electrical in origin, mainly because of his recent inspection. In addition, George and Jenny wondered why, if the fire had been caused by an electrical problem, would the family's Christmas lights be able to remain on throughout the fire's early stages, when the power should have gone out once the fire started. Adding to their suspicions, the missing ladder from the side of the house on the night of the fire was found at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away. A telephone repairman told the Sodders that the house's phone line had not been burned through in the fire as they had initially thought, but cut by someone who had been willing and able to climb 14 feet up the utility pole and then reach two feet away to do so. A man whom neighbors had seen stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire was identified and arrested. He admitted to the theft, but claimed he had not been the one who cut the phone line, thinking it was a power line, but instead denied having anything to do with the fire. However, no record identifying the suspect exists. Additional evidence that the fire was set deliberately, deliberately resulted when the driver of a bus that passed through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve said he had seen some people throwing balls of fire at the Sauter house. A few months later, when the snow had melted, Sylvia found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object in the brush nearby. George, recalling his wife's account of a loud thump on the roof before the fire, said it looked like a pineapple bomb or a hand grenade or some other incendiary device used in combat. Did the children perish or were they kidnapped? If the fire that burned the solder home to the ground was deliberately set, were there, were there five missing children taken by the Sicilian mafia, perhaps in retaliation for George's outspoken criticism of Mussolini and the fascist government? As spring approached, the Sodders planted flowers in the fresh soil where their house had once stood. However, further developments in early 1946 reinforced the family's belief that the children were, they were memorializing that night, in fact, would be alive somewhere. In the weeks before Christmas that year, George's older sons had noticed a strange car parked along the main highway that ran through the town, its occupants watching the younger Sodder children as they returned from school. Not much was thought about this strange car until after the tragic fire. While the fire was in progress, a woman who had been watching the fire from the road came forward and said she saw all five missing children peering from a passing car. Another woman, Ida Crutchfield, who ran a Charleston hotel, claimed to have seen the children about a week after the fire. She reported that she had served them breakfast around midnight and were traveling with two men and two women of Italian extraction. She recalled noting a car in the parking lot with Florida license plates and that the party left the hotel the next morning. Jenny also had trouble accepting that all traces of her children's bodies had been burned completely in the fire. Many of the household appliances had been found still recognizable in the ash, along with fragments of the tin roof. She contrasted the results of the fire with a newspaper account of a similar house fire that she read about around the same time that killed a family of seven. Skeletal remains of all the victims were reported to have been found in that case. Jenny then conducted a private experiment, burning animal bones, chicken bones, beef bones, pork chop bones, to see if the fire would completely consume them, but remnants always remained. She then consulted an employee of a crematorium who told her that the human bones endured even after bodies are burned at 2,000 de degrees for two hours. That solder house burned to the ground in a mere 45 minutes. Convinced that the children might still be alive, the solders refused to give up hope of finding their missing kids and hired C.C. Tinsley, a private investigator from a nearby town. While Tinsley chased down several leads, he couldn't turn up any information or evidence of substance. In August 1949, George was able to persuade Oscar Hunter, a Washington, D.C. pathologist, to supervise a new search through the dirt at the house site. 
After a very thorough search, artifacts, including a dictionary that had belonged to the children and some coins were found. Several small bone fragments were unearthed of a human, a human vertebra. After careful examination, it was determined that the bones likely came from the dirt George moved over the fire site because they showed no signs of exposure to flames and did not fit the size or age of any of the missing solder children. State and federal efforts to investigate the case further in the early 1950s yielded no new information. When the end of the official efforts to resolve the case, the Sauters did not give up hope. They had flyers printed up with pictures of the children offering a $5,000 reward for the information. And in 1952, they put up a billboard with pictures of their five children and another billboard was put up along US Route 60, which became a landmark for traffic traveling through Fayetteville. Refusing to give up, George pursued leads generated by the publicity, traveling in person to St. Louis, Missouri to meet a woman claiming to be his daughter, Martha. And in 1967, he went to the Houston area to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family saying that Lewis had revealed his identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere. However, George and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, were unable to speak with her. Houston police were able to help George find the two men she had indicated, but they denied being the missing sons. Paxton said years later, those doubts about the denial lingered in George's mind for the rest of his life. Also in 1967, a black and white photograph of an adult man in his early 30s resembling Lewis was received by the family in a letter postmarked from Central City, Kentucky. On the back was written, Lewis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, A90132 or 35. In late 1968, George admitted that time is running out for us, but we only want to know if they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. George died in 1969 at the age of 71, and Jenny and her surviving children, except for John, who never talked about the night of the fire, continued to seek answers to their questions about the missing children's fate. After George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home, putting up a fence around it and adding additional rooms. For the rest of her life, she wore black in mourning and tended the garden at the side of the former house. After her death in 1989 at age 85, the family took down the weathered worn billboard. The Sauter children and grandchildren continue to publicize the case and investigate leads. They, along with other Fayetteville residents, have long theorized that the Sicilian mafia was trying to extort money from George and his children may have been taken as, um, by someone who knew about the planned arson and to keep them safe, took them to a home in Italy. If the children had survived all those years and were aware that their parents and siblings had survived too, the family believes they may have avoided contact them, contacting them to keep them from harm. Sylvia Sauter Paxton, the youngest of the family, died in April of, of 2021 at age 79. The night of the fire, she said, was her earliest memory. I was the last one of the kids to leave home, she recalled in 2013. She and her father often stayed up late talking about what might have happened. I experienced their grief for a long time, and she believed that her siblings survived the night. Her daughter said in 2006, she promised my grandparents she wouldn't let the story die and that she would do everything that she could to find out what happened. My sources for this story were the Sauter Children in Wikipedia and Smithsonian Magazine, The Children Who Went Up in Smoke by Karen Abbott, 122512. Such a sad story. Yeah, it really These is. poor parents, my God, losing five children and, you know, not knowing definitively. Um, had to have been torture for them. Absolute yeah, I think, torture. I think the guilt of it all, you know, yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly. Really warm. Um, the first thing that when you first mentioned that you were doing this story to me, we were on the phone and <clears throat> you said, 
there's this case of these children um, who went missing in a fire, right? And my first question to you was, Oh, you want me to say it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Dead air. This have is so more, great. My first question cocktail. to you was. Yeah. Uh, did they die in the basement? Yeah, exactly. And I, because I said, no, you said, no, you said they were in the, in the attic. And I kept feeling like, no, they're in the basement. They were in the basement. And um, I didn't quite know what to make of that because, you know, clearly when I was reading this, they were up in the attic, you know, that's where their bedrooms were. Um, and I thought, well, maybe when the fire broke out, you know, they went down into the basement and um, tried to hide there. And in reality, the whole house collapsed into the basement. Um, so they were in the basement, um, was my feeling. Um, there's no doubt in my mind, zero doubt in my mind that they perished in the fire. Like, it's just so clear in the ether, they died. Mm -hmm. And when I think about um, the structure of the house, it was made of timber um, and it had a tin roof. It did. Um, and I'm assuming George's office was on the second floor, Sans? Yeah, I'm, that's my impression was, I'm not quite sure if it was the second floor or if they were on the first floor, but the office and their bedroom were mm -hmm. next to one another. Yeah, I kind of am thinking like it was on the second floor and um, it created kind of a chimney effect. Mm -hmm. Um, and when they went outside and they were calling to the children and there was no answer, well, smoke rises, smoke yeah. and heat rises. Um, so the very first deaths in that house would have been those five up in the attic. Mm -hmm. Um, and with that tin roof and the timber, it was a kiln. And, um, I don't think that, um, I'm, I'm sure there were bone frag fragments. I really do think that there were bone fragments, but when you bulldoze five feet of dirt over the site, um, you know, stuff is going to get um, turned over and tilled under. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, it's heartbreaking because this poor man is led on these wild goose chases. You know, I saw the children in a car uh, with two, two men, two women of Italian descent. And the fact that he was um, critical of Mussolini, this was after the war. Um, okay, who wasn't critical of Mussolini yeah. after the war? I mean, it's preposterous. It's so ridiculous. And to imagine that five children, five children were kidnapped out of a house, right? Like, come on, that just, you know, that's a Hollywood kind of scenario translated into actuality. It's impossible. It's just not possible. You can't go through that house, kidnap five children. I don't care if you, if you get the ladder up to the, to the window, you, those five kids, they're going to say something. One's going to fall, you know, getting them down a ladder. I mean, come on, that's like insanely complicated. And you yeah. have to know where the children sleep in the house, right? Like you have to have all of that knowledge. There's no way it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But I do believe that Jenny and George were so grief stricken that yeah. they held on to any, any wild and crazy idea um, to imagine that their children weren't dead. And the fact that they didn't attend the funeral and they didn't put closure on it just kept per perpetuating it. And um, the traveling salesman who was trying to sell life insurance, right? And he's like, you know, your children are going to go up and smoke. Yeah. I have a feeling that guy hit on a psychic prediction, you know, mm -hmm. that he hit on it. And he's in the business of kind of predicting when he's going to sell these insurance policy of kind of predicting, you know, yeah, what might sense. fall of these people. So his radar was getting exercised on a regular basis. So of course he's, you know, this is going to come out of his mouth. Um, 
and the fact that um, some of the, the Christmas tree lights were still on, right? While the fire was raging and couldn't have been electrical. It definitely was electrical. That's my feeling was it absolutely wasn't arson. Um, you throw an incendiary device on a tin roof, it's going to roll off. Um, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to burn. Yeah. Um, so no, you know, no, it wasn't arson. It was an electrical fire. The lights on the Christmas tree were kept on. Um, that's not unusual um, because you can have um, one junction box go and the other junction box is still functioning, or you can have a short in a wire and it knocks out power to like George's office, but all the power in the rest of the house is still on. You know, mm-hmm. it's the same thing as when you blow a fuse, it knocks out the power to that one individual area. But that's the whole reason you have a junction box for for Christ's sake, right? So the, the whole house doesn't go um, uh, dark. So, um, yeah, it's just it's just heartbreaking to think that these these people spent what thirty years. Uh, yeah, that their kids 30, were still yeah. were still alive, and you know, had been taken to Sicily, or you know, um, and you know, I could imagine if it was one child you know, being kidnapped and taken away to Sicily, but all five are like supposedly quiet and not communicating with their parents. It's absurd. It's absolutely yeah. absurd. And as people die, you know, like these, uh, uh, Jenny died in the two thousands. That's 60 years almost right past well, it was the time that Mussolini, yeah. you know, yeah. bought it. Yeah. So come on. Right. Um, it's ridiculous. I do think though, there was one thing that I hit on that was kind of, oh, um, and that was the reason that George was taken to America. I had a very distinct feeling that there was a priest in the area. Oh, where he no. lived. Yeah. That, um, it, it wasn't a, a mafia thing or anything. I think a priest was in, inappropriate, uh, with George and, um, they felt he was best, protected by sending him to America. Um, and that's why I think he never talked about it um, because it was far too painful. So um, those are my theories. Um, and that's really so just, interesting. You know, I, I always thought it was kind of weird that at 13, he's brought yeah. over and then well, his he's brother a choir boy back. at that point, right? Yeah. Understood. I like, I think there's, I just find it curious that they left him alone and, you know, to kind of fend for himself in a, right. in a well, country he managed safer. to find. Yeah. It was safer there than home. And, um, that was back in the days, absolutely. Where you didn't call attention to that, you know, um, now you do, but back then you didn't. Um, and this was kind of a rampant sort of behavior, but that was my feeling was that he was taken out of that context and, um, sent to live in America. And I can't imagine being 13 and being on your own in a foreign land, you know, maybe, you know, the language, maybe you don't, my God, this poor man, you know, just endured, incredible hardships and difficulties, um, and probably lent to his outspokenness, right? Because it was earned. Um, it was absolutely earned. So, um, yeah, really, really heartbreaking, heartbreaking story for the parents, um, who just, I don't think could accept that their children had died. And I understand five five kids. I mean, you can kind of sort of half of them, half half of their children. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, I can't, I, I don't know. I don't know what that grief, 
um, if it hit you, when it hit you would look like. So I think that they denied it. I think that they pushed it out and just didn't own it. And they just kept um, clinging to the belief that their children were still alive. And, you know, the cruelty of people to write postcards claiming to be one of the kids, mm. you know, I just, come on, fuck off. <laughs> Seriously. Well, I think, um, I, I thought it was interesting. I read that the trucks not starting, they probably flooded the engines in their haste to get the trucks to move. Yeah. And well, they the, wouldn't go. The, well, the water barrel was frozen solid. Yeah. It tells you how cold it was. Yeah. So in the 1940s, how many trucks started, you know, having yeah, been left true. out in the middle of the night, it's yeah. the coldest it's going to be. It's obviously below zero. That's not unusual. And the whole ladder, you know, in the ravine, well, the guy just did the, um, robber, right. Yeah. The burglar admitted that he used the ladder to cut the, the phone line, um, which he thought was the electricity. Um, so everything can kind of be explained very, very easily. The, the, the more preposterous than the theory, the less I'm, likely to say, yeah, that's the scenario. Um, because it's just not fathomable that they could have climbed a ladder, put a ladder against the house without waking anybody, climbed the ladder, gotten, a ch gotten all five children, not to say a word, okay? And then had them go down the ladder doot, 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 without waking a single soul and absconded them to fucking Sicily. I mean, come on. Well, while Ridiculous. the house is burning, like, do you honestly think the kids are going to be like, oh, I'm going to be quiet while mom and dad burn up, burn up exactly. in the house? Like, exactly. it's not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, you know, but, uh, you know, I'm not wrapped in grief. So, of course, it's preposterous to me because I can stand outside, outside of it and go, come on. Right. But um, I didn't just lose five children in a fire. Um, yeah, so, true. well, I, I liked that you had said to me in passing, um, when we were talking about this before today, that at least the family's finally together, um, yeah. Sylvia, the youngest daughter passed away in April. Yeah. So they're all <clears throat> together now on the yeah. other side. Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, for sure. Um, that's one consolation, I guess we all, we all get reunited, um, which is nice. It's nice to think of that. Um, you know, because they're almost 900,000 families missing someone this Christmas, um, that shouldn't be. So, um, it's, you know, 2020, 2021, I've been a bitch of a years, right? So yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Um, on that, Mary, not me. Uh... Can I tell you, I love your Santa hat. And thank you. Um, thank you for wearing that. Cause I was, I was, I was going to go get one. And I'm like, oh, um, cause um, COVID is just so rampant in my area right now. It's like scary. So it it's like, I just don't want to go to the store for a Santa hat. So, um, thank you for representing my sister. And I love how we both wore chokers today. Um, it's like, uh, we didn't call each other. Um, so we're just about our outfits now. Psychically linked. Potentially. So I'm extremely excited about next week's uh, mystery. Tell me. Uh, it, it has to do with uh, George Reeves, who oh. played Superman on television in the 1950s. And there have been- I used to watch a, that show all the time, remember? Yes. On that black and white TV at the yes. kitchen table. Yeah. Yes. Um, so he, his death was ruled a suicide, but there are two strong theories that point to a lover and his fiance and, and or his fiance. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see what your impressions are of what really happened. And I already have a, I already have okay. one. Like, excellent. Boop. 
Okay, cool. So uh, until then, Mary, Mary. Mary, Mary. We'll Zoom tomorrow, right? Are we Zooming tomorrow? Tomorrow's Christmas, guys. Uh, Just sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ain't, ain't settling for no phone call, Mastista. No, yeah, no, we got to open gifts. Yeah, I got you nothing. No, oh, okay. So those big ass boxes yeah, that I had to haul up from downstairs with my poor aching back. I yeah. slipped in, guys, I slipped and fell on the ice um, day before yesterday and um, I fucked my back up. Um, so keep drinking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That'll cure it. Yep. It'll cure it. Of course yeah. it will. Yeah. When in doubt, alcohol. Um, yeah. So um, it's a little better today, but still, it still hurts. Whiplash. Um, so anyway, I had to go down to the lobby and there are all these like huge boxes. Um, so I don't know who's sending me stuff, but stop <laughs> because I can't carry them up, up three flights of stairs. Just anymore. open them in the lobby. Who cares? Exactly. <laughs> return, keep, return, yeah, keep. Exactly. I, just, no. I know, right? Save yourself the trip. I'll just like haul like a branch and put an ornament on it, you know, like the Grinch Christmas tree down in the lobby. I'm and taking just... over the lobby. That's yeah. it, bitches. Set up a camera and be like, yeah, it's Christmas morning. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. You can't even get in the door because there's so many packages and half of them are fucking mine. So anyway. Um, sucks to be popular. I know, I know. Here I am complaining about generosity and thoughtfulness of people who um, are far better friends and family to me than I am to them. So anyway, <sighs> my next okay. lifetime, I'll be a really, 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 really good friend. I promise. You are a very good friend, just to yeah. a select few. That's the difference. Just what? To a select few. That's the difference. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah inner circle is small, but it's perfect. So anyway, right, I have, I have more holiday cooking to do. So Mary, Mary. Okay. Mary, Mary. I love you. I love you. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was fantastic. Thank you for, thank you this for up. solving this case. <laughs> so hard for me, yeah. the hardships. Um, and I will see you on zoom tomorrow. I'm going to send you a, a zoom link reading thing or a zoom link, zoom Delete. link too much, too much of this saucy stuff. Um, start not to be able to put the thoughts together. Um, if you want to find out more about me and only me, because Sandy doesn't want you to learn anything about her. Um, she likes her anonymity. Um, you can find me at victorialaurie.com. Uh, you can get, um, access to all of my books, access to a reading, read a little bit about me, all that good stuff. So, um, everyone have a wonderful holiday uh, tomorrow, if you're celebrating Christmas, um, if you're in the middle of Hanukkah, I don't know, is, are they in the middle of Hanukkah? Is it the middle? I have no idea. Um, happy Hanukkah and happy, you know, Festivus and happy whatever else. Christmas. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> happy holidays um, uh, to all of you. And we will see you next week when I turn the double nickel, the double nickel. Again, more information forthcoming. I'm excited. I finally okay. get to be the double nickel, you know, okay. I mean, you're three years past that. No, I'm not. <laughs> we both know you're the older of the two of us. So just keep it up. Oh, keep yes. Up. But I have a birth certificate that proves. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love you, Sandy so much. I really do. I love you.
Clear, clearly, clearly. Yes. yes. See, I do because I immortalize you in my books. Yes, in the grossest way possible. In the best read, way possible. Read Dudley Forecast to see how badly she bastardized. Possible. Yeah. Okay. Best way possible. Love you. Love, love you. you Mary, too. Mary, everyone. Thank right. you so much for listening. Bye, everybody. Take care. Bye. Bye. Yay!